Section 8 of The National Geographic Magazine, Volume 9, April 1898. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Alaska and its Mineral Resources Geographical Sketch Alaska has an area of 580,107 square miles. It is roughly quadrangular in outline, with a panhandle extension in the southeast along the coast and a peninsula stretching out into the ocean on the southwest, which continues in the chain of the Aleutian Islands that separate Bering Sea from the Pacific Ocean. Its eastern boundary is formed by the 141st meridian of longitude west from Greenwich, and the westernmost portion of its mainland, Cape Prince of Wales, is on the 168th meridian, or within 54 miles of the easternmost point of Asia. In latitude, it extends from 54 degrees 40 minutes, the southern point of Prince of Wales Island, to Point Barrow, in 71 degrees 23 minutes north latitude, far within the Arctic Circle. Its greatest extent in a north-south line is thus 1,100 miles, and from east to west, 800 miles. The coastline is much broken by arms of the sea, reaching far inland, either as open bays, as sounds, or submerged river valleys, or as fjord-like inlets. The coast abounds in islands, which cover an aggregate area of 31,205 square miles, and which, as a rule, are very mountainous. The chain of the Aleutian Islands, reaching nearly 1,500 miles into the Pacific Ocean, is largely of eruptive origin, and contains many volcanic craters, some of which are yet active. They rise very abruptly from the sea, often to an elevation of several thousand feet, one on Unamak Island reaching a height of 8,955 feet. The Alexander Archipelago and the adjoining coast strip, the best known and most frequented part of the territory, resemble the submerged portion of a narrow and precipitous mountain system. The archipelago consists of 1,100 islands, the largest and most southern of which is Prince of Wales Island. It is intersected by deep and relatively narrow waterways, which often run far inland and bear evidence of previous occupation by glaciers. In some cases, as at Glacier Bay, enormous living glaciers are found at their head, the islands themselves are steep-sided and rise to an average elevation of 2,500 feet. On the seaward side of Baranoff Island, one of the outer tier on which Sitka is situated is a volcanic crater called Mount Edgecombe, 2,855 feet high. Further northwestward, forming part of the same mountain line, the St. Elias Range, which follows the immediate coast, contains many high mountains and culminates to the north in Mount St. Elias at an elevation of 18,024 feet. Mount Logan, further inland, 
is supposed to be still higher and explorers report that far in the interior between copper river and the lower yukon there is a group of mountains extending in the same general direction of equal or perhaps even greater elevation the highest point of which has been designated mount mckinley a second line of elevation is supposed to extend southwestward from near the head of copper river following the coastline in the direction of the alaskan peninsula the rivers entering into the waters of the alexander archipelago are generally short and only two the stikine and the taku are known to head beyond the crest of the mountains immediately adjoining the coast the chilkat river is a considerable and rapid stream entering the head of lynn canal from the northwest it is probably less than one hundred miles in length the next river northward is the alsek about which little is known but it is supposed to head on the east side of the st elias range in the vicinity of mount logan copper river is a larger stream than any of those thus far mentioned and heads in a mountainous country containing several high peaks with an estimated elevation of twelve thousand to eighteen thousand feet and little known except by the indians rolled masses of native copper of which their knives were made were obtained somewhere in this region a northwestern branch of this stream is said to head between the sushitna and the tanana rivers possibly in the lake which on the map is represented as being drained by the sushitna the sushitna also is an important stream emptying into the head of cook inlet very wide and difficult of navigation near its mouth owing to the great rise and fall of the tide its sources are in a high mountainous region a main northwestern branch being supposed to head near mount mckinley the next large river the kuskokwim is the second largest in the territory its length being estimated at over six hundred miles it drains a mountainous region difficult of access the russians ascended it in boats as far as the redoubt kolmakov or crossed from the yukon by a portage near oknagamut the currents of the lower stream are rapid a winter route was also used from fort alexander up the nushagak and down the chulitna in summer the morasses along this route may not be passable beyond norton sound into which empties the great yukon that drains the whole interior region the principal streams of known importance are the koak and the noatak which flow into kotzebue sound the colville river which empties into the arctic ocean is supposed to head in the same general region as the two just mentioned the yukon river has an estimated length of two thousand miles of which three-fourths is continuously navigable for river steamers it empties into norton sound through a wide delta in four principal mouths fifty to sixty-four miles in length for about a hundred miles above the delta it has a general northwest course then bends at right angles and has a southwest direction up to the bend at fort yukon just within the arctic circle here it receives the waters of the porcupine 
a stream having the same general southwest course and heading near the mouth of the Mackenzie River. Fort Yukon is distant in a direct line about 650 miles from the mouth of the river. Above this point, the general direction of the river is again northwest, but a short distance east of the international boundary, it turns to a north-south course, which it maintains for nearly a hundred miles, through the upper ramparts. It is at the bend below this north-running stretch that the Klondike River enters from the east, above which, and more or less parallel, are the Indian and Stuart Rivers all famous as draining a region phenomenally rich in gold. Near the upper end of this north-south course, the White River enters in the same direction from the south. Above this, the Yukon resumes its northwest course and maintains it to Fort Selkirk, which is near the head of navigation. At Fort Selkirk, it splits into two main branches, the Pelly, which drains the Rocky Mountain regions to the northeast, and the Lewis, which in several branches drains the region to the southwest and the many lakes on the eastern side of the coast ranges. The principal tributaries of the Yukon from Fort Selkirk to Fort Yukon are, on the south side, in descending order, White, 60 Mile, 40 Mile, Mission, 70 Mile, and Charlie Rivers, and on the north, from Dawson at the mouth of the Klondike downward, the Chandindu, Tatondu, Takandit, and Kandik Rivers. From Fort Yukon to the open country near the mouth of the river, the longer streams coming from the southeast are Birch Creek, Beaver, Tanana, and Noekakat Rivers. From the north, come the Dahl, Tozikakat, Melozikakat, and Koyukok rivers, the latter one of the largest tributaries, and said to be 500 to 600 miles in length. The Yukon is generally a broad and muddy stream, flowing with a current of 3 to 9 miles an hour. Occasionally it runs in a narrow rocky canyon cut through lava or across low mountain ranges, and such stretches are locally called ramparts. For the most part, however, its valley is wide, and the stream often spreads out into many channels with low wooded islands between, the whole covering a width said to reach ten miles in places. Dry spruce is practically the only fuel available for steamers along the Yukon, and the supply is limited and difficult to obtain. Although the river is frozen up during eight months of the year, from October to June, its importance as a means of transporting supplies can hardly be overestimated. In the early years, when the connection between the upper and lower portions of the river was not absolutely known, the Hudson Bay fur traders were in the habit of taking their peltry from Fort Selkirk down to the mouth of the Porcupine and up that stream to the Mackenzie, preferring to make this long and circuitous journey rather than encounter the difficulties of a more direct route across the mountains to the eastward. 
the international boundary between american and canadian territory has no relation to the physical structure of the interior region hence in this description that portion of british columbia which lies opposite the alexander archipelago and the coastal strip of american territory southeast of mount st elias will be considered as part of the general province of alaska the known portions of the interior region which lie mainly south of the arctic circle belong to the drainage system of the yukon river this stream with its various tributaries drains the northwestern portion of the cordilleran system included between the coast and the mackenzie river valley which are about seven hundred miles apart and approximately parallel the mackenzie river flows from great slave lake into the arctic ocean to one tracing the broader features of physical structure northwestward from the united states through british columbia it would seem that the mountainous region between the yukon and the mackenzie represents the rocky mountains proper and the alexander archipelago and adjoining coast slopes the coast ranges the basin of the upper yukon the river above the great bend would then be the representative of the great basin region in the united states since north of the forty ninth parallel the uplift of the sierra nevada has merged with that of the coast ranges into one general system the coast range proper is a broad elevated belt with many scattered peaks but not differentiated into continuous ranges oceanward it presents an abrupt rugged front cut by fjord-like valleys to the east is a plateau-like region which descends gradually to the north from an elevation of five thousand feet in the upper lake region to three thousand feet in the lower lewis and pelly river valleys the river valleys in this stretch often lie two thousand to two thousand five hundred feet below the general plateau level in the interior region the soil is frozen for a large portion of the year so that there is comparatively little rock decay where there is no timber the surface is generally covered with an abundant growth of moss this wherever the surface material is sufficiently compact to become impervious to water by freezing produces large areas of swampy tracts even on sloping ground which except in the glaciated regions or when cut through by large streams obscure the rock surface and render difficult the work of the prospector the northwestern continental ice sheet or cordilleran glacier of dawson which centered in british columbia between latitudes fifty five degrees and fifty nine degrees north did not extend in this interior region north of the sixty-second parallel hence the greater part of the yukon basin has not been glaciated except by local glaciers this fact has been readily recognized by the geologists who have visited the region in recent times and indeed is evident on inspection of the maps by the abundance of lakes above this line and their absence below it the yukon or all water route this route is by ocean steamer from seattle or san francisco to st michael near the mouth of the yukon thence by river steamboat up the yukon to dawson
the length of this route is about four thousand miles it being nearly two thousand seven hundred from seattle to st michael and about one thousand three hundred up the yukon to dawson those taking this route aim to leave st michael early in july in order to avoid the delays in upstream progress caused by sandbars at low stages of water later in the season the time from seattle to st michael is about twenty days and that from st michael to dawson the same making about forty days for the trip under favorable weather and circumstances it may be made in less time though this route is the one over which commercial companies operating in the yukon country transport their goods it is seldom used by miners who wish to enter in the spring since at that season it takes several weeks longer to make the trip by this route than it does to make it by some of the trails mentioned below it is however highly advantageous for persons unfitted to rough it on the trails the skagway or white pass route from seattle to skagway a distance of one thousand one hundred fifteen miles the route is by ocean steamer northward along the coast and finally up lynn canal it is practically a still water route being protected from the swells of the ocean by an almost continuous barrier of densely wooded islands the trip requires about three and one-half days skagway is located on the east side of daia inlet a branch of lynn canal its population which is much increased by people who have been unable to get across the trail is said to be about eight thousand daia is situated four miles north of skagway west of the mouth of daia river and at the head of daia inlet the rise and fall of the tide in this inlet is about twenty-four feet at skagway steamers find good anchorage within half a mile of the beach to which freight is taken in lighters at high tide which are unloaded when the tide recedes several newly built wharves are said to be now in practical use and the facilities for landing cargoes are greatly superior to those at daia from skagway the trail leads northeastward up the valley of the skagway river crossing the mountains at white pass and running thence northward to the head of lake bennett whose waters flow into the yukon the summit of white pass is two thousand four hundred feet above sea level and its distance from skagway is eighteen miles for the first four or five miles there is a good wagon road which crosses the river several times by ford at high stages of water however freight must be packed across on foot bridges beyond this are long stretches of very miry and rocky ground where a loaded man will sink knee-deep in the mud there are also several steep and rough ascents of which porcupine hill is the sharpest the last two miles before reaching the summit is a steady hard climb but presents no cliffs or precipices many horses have been killed or have died on this trail seventy-five to one hundred pounds make a good load for the ordinary packer from the summit to lake bennett seventeen miles the trail improves although still bad it is for the most part 
gradually downhill over an undulating rocky surface the timber line is reached again at the meadows about five miles beyond the pass which is the ordinary camping place the trail passes the two small lakes known as summit and middle lakes on which ferriage may be secured when the water is not frozen midway between the latter and lake lindemann about three miles before reaching lake bennett the canadian custom-house officials have put up a large log cabin which is used as a place of shelter by those crossing the trail at this point a trail branches off to the right down to tushi lake but as there are seven miles of impassable river between tushi and tagish lakes travelers bound for the yukon are warned from taking this route at the head of lake bennett the skagway joins the chilkoot trail the skagway trail is somewhat longer than that over the chilkoot pass but the pass is much lower it requires however considerable improvement in bad and swampy places this route has been recently recommended by the united states quartermaster's department of puget sound the daya or chilkoot pass route this trail has been used by the indians for generations and until a year ago was practically the only route followed by miners and prospectors who entered the interior it is the shortest route to the headwaters of the yukon daya or taya is the indian word meaning pack or load owing to the extensive shoals at the head of daya inlet the conditions for anchorage and discharging cargoes from ocean vessels are less favorable than at skagway they are either unloaded by means of lighters or put upon a rocky point about a mile from the beach whence they are hauled off in wagons daya trail runs northeastward up the daya river and across the chilkoot pass at an elevation of three thousand five hundred feet to the head of lake lindemann a total distance of twenty-eight and one-half miles the summit is thirteen miles from daya the first six and one-half miles following a comparatively open valley in which there is a good wagon road owing to the windings of the stream within the walls of the valley the river must be crossed several times by fords in summer by ferries in spring when the water is deep the trail then enters a narrow canyon with steep rocky walls which it follows to sheep camp at timberline four and one-half miles further on through the canyon the trail is rougher but horses have been successfully used for several years in packing to sheep camp good camping places are found all along the route from daya to sheep camp and at several points refreshments may be obtained sheep camp is the last camping place on the west side of the range as from there on there is no timber or fuel until deep lake on the other slope twelve miles distant is reached from sheep camp to scales where packs are weighed by the canadian authorities a distance of three and three-quarters miles the rise is about one thousand eight hundred feet the trail is free from mud 
and travelling is not difficult though in places the ground is covered with boulders from scales to the summit of the pass the ground rises one thousand feet in a distance of about half a mile and masses of broken rock or talus make the climb very difficult and impossible for pack animals the building of an aerial or wire tramway with buckets carrying four hundred pounds of freight has been contemplated for this portion of the route from the summit of chilkoot pass to lake lindemann a distance of fifteen and one-half miles the trail descends first very steeply to a small lake called crater lake and thence more gradually along the drainage way of a chain of lakes known as long canyon and deep lakes which are connected with one another and finally with lake lindemann by small streams till late in spring the whole of this drainage way is frozen over and one travels from the summit to lake lindemann by sled on either side of the pass especially on the south snow sometimes accumulates to a depth of fifty or sixty feet forming a sort of neve of limited extent late in the season when the drainage is open a ferry sometimes plies on long lake a distance of four miles from the foot of lake lindemann there is portage past the rapids to the head of lake bennett where the daya and skagway trails meet from the head of lake bennett to dawson five hundred forty eight miles there is a continuous waterway through lakes and rivers which may be followed in summer by boat and in winter on the ice long stretches are navigable by light draft steamers boats may be procured or built at the head of the lake but in some respects the most advantageous method is to start early enough to travel on the ice as far as the foot of lake labarge where timber for boat building is abundant as in this way the dangerous passage of the white horse rapids is avoided lake bennett is twenty-six miles in length narrow and canyon-like in form and deep at the lower end fifteen miles below the bend where the southwest arm comes in strong winds often prevail producing a rough sea that is dangerous for boats and parties are often storm-bound there for several days a sluggish stream two and one-half miles long and often not more than three feet deep known as caribou crossing extends from the foot of lake bennett to tagish lake thence there is clear sailing nineteen miles down tagish lake and five miles along a river deep enough for ordinary river steamers to marsh or mud lake marsh lake is nineteen miles long and empties into fifty mile river whose current averages three to four miles an hour about twenty-five miles down the river enters miles canyon a chasm about one hundred feet wide and five-eighths of a mile long between perpendicular walls of basalt eighty to one hundred feet high the swift turbulent current carries a boat through this canyon in about three minutes for a fair-sized boat not too heavily loaded which is kept under steerage way by one or more good oarsmen and follows the middle of the stream so as not to be dashed against the steep rocks on either side the passage is quite practicable 
at the foot of the canyon one must keep to the left until the heavy swells are passed then turn sharply to the right and land on the east or right bank a safer course which is followed by many is to portage one's load along the right side of the canyon over a hill about two hundred feet high and run the boat through empty three-eighths of a mile below this canyon are rapids about half a mile long which though very rough are not dangerous a half mile below these are the white horse rapids the most dangerous on the whole river they are about one-third of a mile long and are confined between low basaltic walls near their foot the walls close together forming a chasm only thirty yards wide while the bed of the stream drops suddenly so that the river rushes wildly through leaping and foaming in a cataract many boats have passed successfully through but others have been swamped with loss of outfits and sometimes of life the safer plan is to portage around the rapids and let the boat down by line the portage is on the west shore but on either side a tramway could be constructed without great difficulty lake labarge which is sixty miles below the white horse rapids is thirty-one miles long and easily navigable by steamers there is abundant good timber at its foot the river below lake labarge as far as fort selkirk is known as the lewis and is also navigable for one hundred sixty miles down to the five finger rapids here a rock of conglomerate rises up from the river bottom forming several islands and backing up the river a foot or two so as to produce a strong swell below steep cliffs of the same rock on either bank render a portage at this point impracticable with proper steerage way and care however an ordinary boat may run the rapids safely the right or east side is followed by most yukon travelers but ogilvy of the canadian survey from actual experience pronounces the channel along the west bank as also passable for six miles below the five finger rapids the current is swift and then occur the rink rapids which extend halfway across the river from the western bank producing a decided riffle on the east side however the water is comparatively smooth and safe below this the river is practically free from rapids and navigation is unimpeded fort selkirk where the pelly and lewis unite to form the yukon is sixty-five miles below thence it is about ninety-five miles to the mouth of white river ten miles further to the mouth of the stewart thence twenty-two miles to sixty mile river and forty-five miles further to dawson at the mouth of the klondike dalton or chilcot pass route this is an overland route following a direct course more or less independent of waterways from the head of chilcot inlet to fort selkirk it has been used by j dalton a trader for some time as a pack train route and for driving in cattle but little is definitely known of its geography it ascends first the chilcot and clahuela rivers crossing the pass in forty-five miles at an elevation of three thousand feet and thence descending into the drainage of the taquina river 
at Lake Arkell. From Lake Arkell, the trail is said to pass over an undulating plain, well timbered in the valleys and with grass on the slopes. The distances from the head of the inlet are given as 75 miles to the watershed and 100 miles to Dalton's trading post. From there to the Pelly, the distance is 200 miles, or 300 miles in all to the Pelly, and 350 to 400 to Fort Selkirk. The Steichheim Route By this route, one travels by boat from Fort Wrangell, 150 miles up the Steichheim River, to Telegraph Creek, and thence, a little to the west of north, 150 miles to the head of Teslin Lake. The ascent of the Steichheim River is tedious and sometimes dangerous, the current being swift and rapids numerous. It is, however, the route that was followed in former days by miners going to the Cassiar district. From Telegraph Creek to Teslin Lake, the trail is said to pass through a gently undulating and well-timbered country, which presents no obstacles to the building of a railroad. Lake Teslin is said to be about 80 miles long and bounded on both sides by high mountains. From its foot down to the Lewis runs the Teslin River, which is navigable except for two small rapids, one near its head, the other further down. In its lower course, the Teslin spreads out into many channels, occupying a total width of two or more miles. This route appears promising, but is as yet only prospective. The Taku Route This route ascends the Taku Inlet and River and crosses directly to Lake Teslin or Aklen, a distance of 185 miles from Juno. Thence it is identical with the Steichine Route. By this route, one travels by steamer from Juno, 18 miles up the Taku Inlet to the foot of a large glacier, which is often very dangerous to boats, even at a distance of several miles, by reason of the ice masses that break off from it. Then by boat, 60 miles up the Taku River to the head of canoe navigation. The portage which follows is for the first 20 miles through the canyon-like valley of an eastern branch, then for 50 miles in broad valleys of the upper Taku, 3,500 to 5,000 feet above sea level. For the last 15 miles, the route is in the densely wooded valleys of Teslin Lake, among many small ponds. This route is said to be not impracticable for a railroad, and a charter for one has already been granted by the Canadian government. Its merits, however, have not yet been thoroughly tested. Both this and the Steichine route have the undoubted advantage of avoiding the dangerous White Horse Rapids. The Copper River Route This, the only land route within American territory, would strike inland from near the mouth of the Copper River and follow a general northeasterly course toward the Klondike, thus crossing a great mountain range whose rough topography and many glaciers that fill the valleys and passes render general travel difficult. Orca, the only settlement on the coast nearby, which is 50 miles beyond the mouth of Copper River and 700 miles from Sitka, had in 1897 a population of 22 whites. 
it is the first post office west of sitka according to reports of natives confirmed by lieutenant allen who crossed over to the tanana in eighteen eighty five the better way is to start inland from valdez inlet on prince william sound and crossing the valdez glacier strike copper river one hundred eighty miles above its mouth thus avoiding the gorge and the most dangerous rapids from the copper river basin an advisable route would seem to be over the skoloi pass and down white river but from observations made by hayes it appears that the pass which has an elevation of over five thousand feet is occupied by a glacier three hundred to four hundred feet thick and that white river abounds in rapids too rough for a loaded boat i c russell who visited the mount st elias region in eighteen ninety and eighteen ninety one reports a mountainous region to the northward occupied by huge glaciers this region is to be explored during the coming summer by parties sent out by the war department End of section eight. Recording by Linda Johnson.